Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. In this episode, we review the key security events from 2022 and look at some of the developments set to influence information security in the coming year. Our guests this week are Sue Milton of ISARCA and She Leads Tech and John France, CISO at ISC Squared. In our discussions, we cover geopolitics, new and emerging threats, the ongoing skills shortage, the potential for AI in cyber and the importance of supply chains and the importance of managing increasingly complex relationships across the entire cybersecurity space, as well as the issues most likely to shape the CISO agenda over the coming year. First, I asked ISC Squared's John France to recap on the cybersecurity milestones as he saw them in 2022. 12 months has seen um, an environment probably like I've never seen in the previous years. Obviously, we started off with the year with the, um, I'm going to score Log4j, even though it was really started just the year before, uh, really did bite into 2022. Then we obviously saw the emergence of um, the conflict in the East, uh, driving quite a lot of issues. Um, and then obviously sort of rise of privacy concerns uh, continues to be an undercurrent uh, among uh, many uh, geopolitical areas as well. So um, ransomware, Still, still top of the sort of target list and emergent wipeaware scenarios that was really dr- drawn out of the probably the Ukrainian uh, Russian conflict. And have we seen a drawing together of nation state actors in cyberspace and kinetic conflict on the ground? Microsoft put out some research suggesting that that was what was being done. But is that something that you're seeing and is that impacting organizations that are not directly involved in the conflict? I mean, I think that there's sort of two two ways of looking at that. Uh, if we sort of look at cyber warfare and the fourth battlefield, it's it's definitely a reality now. Um, we've seen, uh, obviously, Russia trying to target Ukrainian infrastructure through cyber um, as much as um, Ukrainian is, is fighting back in the cyber plane as well. That has had uh, ramifications. Obviously, I think there was the... Um, on the cusp of when the conflict started, the uh, satellite outage uh, of one of the news channels, and then there's been some um, some websites, notably uh, airline websites, that were taken offline uh, as well. Uh, and then probably some of the unintended consequences: uh, cyber munitions, no, no geographical boundaries, of course. In terms of government reaction to that, um, we've actually, for the first time, I think, had a government come out and publicly supporting um, cyber efforts, and that was the UK government um, actually said they were were supporting Ukrainians' um, uh, cyber warfare efforts, or at least in the defence side. Um, so that that was kind of a fairly uh, new, even if we may have understood that it's happened in the past, um, for a government or a nation state to actually come out publicly and say that, I think um, it's quite telling, really. What are the implications for that for organisations operating in cyberspace? I mean, do they need to pay more attention to geopolitical issues? The simple answer is yes, because it's it's all complexity in the threat landscape it's it's getting more complex if we couple uh, sort of the the cyber warfare elements along with the conflicts in the east you've also got some potential global economic recession coming uh, which obviously puts uh, lots of tension into um, lots of industries and then the supply chain um, which we obviously saw in things like solar winds and um, even log4j in certain respects becoming highlighted so i think we uh, this year has seen a concentration of a number of factors that's that's put um, threat landscapes 
face more complexity. And that means everyone should really pay attention. Um, and I'm not just saying that's businesses and nation state, but that's consumers as well. From the perspective of non-nation state actors, we are still seeing a lot of ransomware. We're still seeing a lot of cyber crime. But are there any trends that we can detect within that? Any changes that may influence what we have to do in terms of protecting infrastructure organizations and data? If we look at potentially the motivations. Predominantly, ransomware came to the fore as a, um, economically motivated. Obviously, uh, gaining money was was one way. That's uh, become less prevalent. Um, it's it still, don't get me wrong, it, it's, it's still a big motivator. But as many organizations have got a better stance on data recovery um, and return to operations, I think the, the next leverage uh, point that uh, ransomware is using, again, for economic gain, but um, slightly different method is uh, publicly naming and shaming and releasing data that's rather than hurting operation then they're now harming reputation as a way of financial extraction uh, and then we've seen obviously the rise a little bit of rise of wiperware um, that has has come out of the conflict which is um, long-term destruction of either data or operation but that can be a consequence of potentially not acceding to demands as well so ransomware big concern um, the, the the sister product to that is obviously phishing that's usually one big way uh, ransomware is propagated or at least infiltrated, um, uh, which is through um, uh, phishing and social engineering. So um, a continued focus on that, I think, is also worth worth noting. Have there been any significant developments in the defensive landscape, legislation, regulation, best practice, or anything else that you would highlight, which has actually helped organizations to improve their security over the last year? Regulation is, is, is probably coming. We've seen um, some uh, consumer-based uh, legislation in the UK around things like IoT and some of the technological components of consumer. Um, uh, Europe's definitely coming in with the uh, Cyber Resilience Act um, and others. So uh, governments have obviously picked up on um, cyber being uh, critical to not only um, national concerns, but uh, socioeconomic and health and real physical world health as well. So yes, government's paying attention to it. Also talks to um, what do we do in the face of some of those? Some of that means um, upskilling and uh, broadening uh, access to skills, which is uh, another point of tension, which is uh, the global workforce skills gap in, in cyber as well. In terms of sort of other sort of trends uh, across the security landscape, not one more on the consumer side, but many businesses and commercial enterprises sort of be now being classed as critical national infrastructure, or at least quasi uh, CNI. Um, uh, you know, it's the the I'm going to call it the old demarcation of uh, state versus commerce is very much blurred, um, uh, and that a lot of our constructs these days rely on commercial entities. And so we have to protect those um, as critical national infrastructure providers, even if even if they're straight commercial um, organisations. Do you feel that perhaps some of the lessons learned in the previous two years have been ignored or, or they've been de-emphasised? We did quite a lot around changing the way we approached infrastructure during lockdown. But has that been carried through? Have we hardened some of those remote working operations and setups that were created quite quickly? Or has that simply been overlooked? We just move on. No, I don't think it's been overlooked. I think there might be an element of focus. It's not that we've lost focus. It's just that other things have come into sharp relief. Obviously, through COVID, we... uh, socially adopted lots of digital tooling, lots of techniques that we 
may seem very odd at the time. Um, I think we're in a consolidation phase on some of those. Most businesses are, are keeping hold of that uh, and sort of saying, uh, if we look at remote working as one of them, uh, I think most businesses now have a, um, a good handle on remote working and are, are, are continuing uh, where possible uh, to bring that in as, as part of their mix uh, of, of how to keep a workforce engaged, consolidating down. But, you know, um, other things, and we mentioned the conflict in the East, we mentioned uh, economic downturn. All of those things may may pull our focus elsewhere. So I don't think it's forgotten. I think it it may just be other things are more, more pressing. Uh, but I think generally uh, we find ourselves – uh, responding better than we have in the past. That's probably true. Uh, but you touched on the question of skills and the gap. And before we start to look at 2023, just a thought around that. I've done lots of interviews over the last few years talking about the skills gap and prior to lockdown, during lockdown, after lockdown. And one thing that comes to the fore is that really we're not seeing a huge improvement. We may be seeing qualitative improvements and improvements in people in the pathway to getting the qualifications, perhaps. But that three million or so figure seems to be fairly consistent in terms of the number of vacant cybersecurity roles. What's your take on that? I actually think we, we've, we've done an admirable job Glo- globally. We've um, um, uh, From our workforce server, I think we, we've added uh, around... I'm probably going to get the figure wrong, around 600,000 into the workforce globally. That's a great achievement. Um, unfortunately, the, the gap's accelerated away from us. So I, I don't think it's from one of a lack of trying or a lack of interest. It's just uh, one of those one of those gaps that's it's growing, not not because of a lack of effort. Um, it's just because of the environment we find ourselves in. But that, that does lead us into a, a question of, well, how do I actually close that gap? We would say, you know, look, look towards um, adjacent industries, not just fish out the IT pond, which is the traditional way of sort of getting um, cybersecurity professionals um, recruit for um, recruit for inherent skills like curiosity, creative thinking, logical thought processes. Um, the rest can be trained, um, and it, and it really is that uh, get people interested in the industry, retain them, train them upskill them through their careers um, and, they're, and they're likely to stay in it. I'm also going to try and bust one of those myths as well, which is, you know, want to get more people into entry-level positions. That doesn't mean young. I'd love to sort of say, look, we're looking for career changes as well. Uh, some of the best cyber, cyber execs and cyber professionals I've known have come from non-traditional backgrounds, um, whether that be uh, finding someone that was really excellent in an HR role or someone with a medieval history as their classical training um, uh, uh, being uh, the top of the sort of the cyber cyber tree. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of go into inherent skills and, and traits rather than empirical knowledge, and let's try and attract more people in from adjacencies. When you're saying that the, the gap is getting away from us, is, is that what you're alluding to there, that there's more threats, or we simply have that expansion of the digital economy, which therefore requires more skilled cyber people? Or indeed, is it being impacted by people leaving the industry, whether that's through retirement or other reasons? I think it's a function of recognition that, that there is um, a need for the skilling. So more businesses that adopted digital things recognize that they need cybersecurity um expertise. So um, I suppose it's a recognition of the pent-up demand potentially there. Um, that's sort of growing out the number. Um, uh, that's one thing. I don't think we've got a problem with uh, people leaving the industry. Um, I've, I've been around in it for quite a while and, and most people tend to say it's it's actually fast moving. Um, I'm going to call it fun. If, if you like a bit of stress in your life, it's fun. Um, 
but it, it is a fun uh, industry to get into and uh, many different ways of going, either getting into it and actually traversing across it. Um, you can become a people person manager or you can become a deep technical expert. Um, there's a gamut for everyone. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say now, now's, now's the time. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of one of those jobs that's probably never not going to be needed as well. Um, so if you're looking for um, some of some aspects of security in a role, uh, as, as much as I say that in an in a, in a economically pressured world at the moment, I think it's a pretty good choice. Yes, and it's unlikely that threat actors are going to disappear anytime soon so there'll always be that demand that's very true i mean uh we we do explain it as a kind of a it's a cat and mouse game or an arms race um uh and it it requires focus both on um defense as well as keeping tabs on uh, what's going on on the attack side as well so in terms of what might happen it's probably possible to extrapolate from some of what we've seen over the last year or two uh, in terms of the issues that are likely to be high on the agenda for the CISO in the coming year. What do you feel are probably the most important considerations? Let's pick pick the obvious one. Um, if, if we are heading into potentially a world recession, um, I know the UK's uh, in one at the moment, and other economies might looking to tip in there and high inflation rates. Um, discretionary budgets tend to get squeezed, and training seems to be um, one of those areas that's deemed a discretionary budget. Uh, we're not seeing a contraction in spend on cyber, core cybersecurity functionality, but um, I think part of a, a good function is to train not only uh, the professionals within it, but also the the wider staff base if you're in commercial organizations and consumer space if you're as well. So I think um, we sh we'll probably see some pressure around uh, training budgets. Um, solution to that is, is look for innovative ways around those. It doesn't always have to be monetary spent to do education and raise awareness. We shouldn't um, take our foot off the gas in terms of raising awareness and educating people around these issues. So that's kind of one early prediction I make is uh, economic tough times. Um, going to uh, maybe blunt some some budgetary uh, controls around uh, cybersecurity. I think it also has the um, encouragement on the attack side as well. Um, if people are in economically pressured scenarios, they may be more inclined to do things that may be a little uh, questionable. So we could see the threat landscape uh, worsen slightly as uh, crimes of opportunity come around, especially digital ones. There's that tension. Uh, economic uh, strife tends to cause both a reduction on uh, defense and, a, and an increase in the attack. The other sort of thing I predict is potentially we need to focus on operational technology. Um, it tends to be the poor cousin of these sort of sexier internet type stuff. Incredibly important to um, operation, stuff that has an effect in physical world. So um, OT attacks, I'm hoping we're not going to see a rise in them, but um, I think it's an obvious factor that people will look at. And you did also mention earlier on regulation. And there's quite a lot of regulation being discussed or in the pipeline. Is that something that we will see coalesce in the coming year and actually start to take shape and form that you know, CISOs and boards can now look at it and say, OK, these are the steps we need to take? I think boards are pretty good at having a general handle on what's coming out of the regulatory landscape. Um, it's been discussed probably for the last 18 months to two years. So we really saw the march of... Um, 
privacy is probably the, in the vanguard, but cybersecurity is now very much firmly in, in the uh, crosshairs of regulators um, for good reason. I'm not just saying it's because we're solely deficient. It may be the regular, uh, regulatory landscape is deficient in addressing it. So I think we are going to be seeing some stuff coming out from regulators, continued rather than brand new. From Europe, for instance, we've got uh, NIST-2, which is um, a refresh of uh, NIST, which is a few years old now, um, Cyber Resilience Act, um, things like that. So continued, I'm going to call it evolution rather than revolution in regulation, but uh, allied to privacy. So we might see some more things around privacy. Uh, obviously, the UK landscape is um, setting out its sort of next stages in, in the, the privacy side. So yeah, I would expect to see more than that. Uh, definitely going to be uh, making it onto board agendas and onto CSO agendas as well. So lastly, then, in terms of, and this is probably the most difficult area, in terms of trying to anticipate where the threats may come from, are there areas where you would say there's likely to be an increase in activity, whether that's nation state or criminal or other? And are there likely to be changes in the way organizations put together their security posture? So perhaps a more a focus on resilience and recovery uh, than on perimeter defense, which is, again, is not a new trend. It's been in train for a couple of years now, but certainly asking around, that seems to be an area that people are increasingly concerned about because they've seen the impact of some of those attacks. As you mentioned, WiperWare, those continue to be a very real threat. I would concur. Um, I think if, if we're looking at more complex threat landscapes, then rather than trying to respond to each individual threat, you do look at resilience um, and general uh, resilience that will respond to to many of those vectors. Resilience and, and coping, uh, detecting, dealing and remediating from those kind of things, I think, is an area It's definitely on, on my radar as a CISO. Part of that is education uh, and skilling, but I would rather sort of put my faith in resilience rather than in um, some of the sort of newfangled toy to, to you know, let, let's deal with a specific sort of ransomware or wipeware scenario. Uh, I think uh, if, I'm, if I'm digitally resilient, um, then, then I can cope better with a with the broader range of things that comes at me. Are we going to see continuing complexity in threat landscapes? Yes. Um, uh, like I say, conflict, economic tensions are going to drive that. Um, do I anticipate a, a major vector having one spike? I've already mentioned operational technology just because um, you can get Big effects in that with little input uh, at the moment, as it seems. But I am hopeful that the coming year will see us um, rise to the challenge. John France on how organisations should look to build resilience in the business instead of relying purely on technology in order to deal with cyber threats. But what is going to be top of the agenda for CISOs in 2023? We asked Isaka's Sue Milton to set out her view of the priorities for people working in the industry. I think for the CISO, two things. It's protection of the data, um, not only personal, but the kind of data that we consider to be um, important for the business and for the stakeholders. And I think the other one is the increase in cyber attacks and ones that attack the heart of the company, if you like, ransomware. And how prevalent have they been in your experience? Are lots of organisations falling victim to these? It seems to be the case. I mean, the numbers seem to be horrendous. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands a year and increasing year on year. The two points I made, like data protection and ransomware, of course, are very much interlinked because data is valuable. To then hold that data to ransom makes sense from the bad actor's viewpoint. So in trying to solve one, perhaps protecting data better, 
then maybe we can solve um, or at least diminish the number of ransomware attacks. So from a CISO's point of view, I would be focusing a lot on that. I think it's a daily challenge. And then the third challenge, which is probably when you want to start looking at the future, is the speed of innovation. How can I, as a CISO, make sure we optimize what's coming up, but also how do we protect everything that goes through that new innovative technology? Interesting. So if we go back to the threats, and we'll come back to innovation in a moment, but if we go back to the threats to start with, what's driving that? Clearly with ransomware, we've seen monetization and the ease of monetization as being a big part of that. But we've also seen geopolitical incidents affecting that and other factors too. So potentially... Some observers are saying now the economy is going to drive more people towards cybercrime. So probably too early to say that that was happening in 2022. We certainly saw an uptake or an increase in the uptick of cyber incidents during the various lockdowns. Are we likely to see a further increase? Is that partly being driven by the economy or would you say it's potentially the geopolitical situation is perhaps more of the driver? Well, I believe there will be a further increase. I don't think this is going to diminish um, over time at all. Why? I think there are two key factors. I think geopolitical instability is definitely one. There's a more, if you like, business need at nation state level to start looking at what other countries are doing. So you're going to start wanting to penetrate other nations' systems and gather information. And you can do that, I suppose, relatively easy these days at a micro level, not just at the government level, but start drilling down to key organisations, key infrastructure organisations, key health and education systems, and do anything that can disrupt daily life, because that is demoralising for the local population. Um, So I think geopolitical um, instability is going to be a key driver. I think another key driver that has been mentioned in the past but has kind of not um, raised its head for a while is the sheer gap in the number of people we need in cybersecurity to actually protect our businesses better. Um, The skill shortage is well known. And I think geopolitical problems have now overshadowed that. If we have a lot of people that we would consider bad actors now gainfully employed because there is a reason for them to do it, then the rest of us are pretty much stuck by not having the skills that we um, need in our organisation. And that was certainly one of the outcomes of the switch towards remote working during the pandemic, was that we digitised a lot more things that perhaps would have been digitised at some point, but it happened very quickly. Security was not necessarily part of the plan. And even when organisations realised that security needed to be part of the plan, they were then all fighting in the same market for the skilled people to do it. Do you think that's going to have an ongoing effect on the industry? I think it is, because when you need a set of particular skills, you can teach it, which can be relatively quick, but it's the actual day-to-day experience that gives us, if you like, the smell test about whether something working well or not, that is necessary to really protect our businesses. And that takes perhaps several years. And also, I think we've been pretty much narrow-minded in whom we believe makes a good cybersecurity um, individual, professional. Um, so I think if we can actually look into the population that is underrepresented focus on women, but also on um, neural divergence, I think that will really, really help. Because 
so much of technology is not just about the functionality that we drive through it. It's also about how they interact with each other and how human beings interact with all of that technology. So we need a load of soft skills as well as technical skills. But those technical skills don't have to be the equivalent of having, you know, a, a computer engineering degree. What we're wanting to look at is people that have an eye for detail, can see patterns, can work with um, a sort of robotics better in a way that other people might not be able to. I'm just thinking of artificial intelligence. Bizarrely, that could be a real help in trying to um, find those patterns of weaknesses, perhaps, and behaviours of bad actors. But again, you need somebody that can understand what's in the AI algorithm code to make sure it's working as required. And that is hidden. So I think we need, that's why I think we need neural diverse people to help us go through all the layers to get to the root of a particular piece of software, nut and bolt, and then to work with all the tools that make the configuration and management of all those aspects work well. So casting the net more widely for talent will certainly be part of the picture. It's well known that there is a three million and, and some change deficit in terms of unfilled vacancies within cybersecurity, and that seems to be reasonably stable. But talking to CISOs and others in the vendor space as well, the, the impression is that the number of people employed in cybersecurity has actually gone up over the last couple of years. The problem is that the requirement has gone up by more. So is that partly what you're seeing as well, that actually we've done quite well at bringing people in, but not far enough and fast enough to keep up with the demands of the business. That is my feeling too. Although when I've been looking at advertisements for hiring people, I still think most of the job specifications are either so specific that you're unlikely to get that individual or so broad that people aren't really quite sure what the company is looking for. And so finding a match can be really rather difficult. I would think one of the things coming forward is that recruiters and businesses need we need to get together with the tech people a bit more to put together some sensible job specifications that can be launched into the job market that actually make it attractive. So it might be the same job with advertised in perhaps half a dozen different ways so that it can reach a broader set of the population. And I think that might help with the recruitment. I think we're at a stage now where, again, I'm going to link back to innovation. Innovation is so fast and the skills needed to understand everything that goes on television is a mixture of being so broad, but also necessary to be so deep across that breadth. So we've got breadth and we've got depth. Um, and that leads us all in a position where no one person can fully understand what's going on in our, our IT systems, in our businesses, let alone what's going across the supply chain. And that's where we cannot ever hope to catch up, which is why I think we need to sort of think about, okay, not only the broader person that we need and having a good mix, enabling each of us to work better, I think, with the tools. So we're kind of coming into... You know, it's not just AI and machine learning, it's uh, people into action with AI. 
that's going to be important as well. Yeah, it's been said to me before that sometimes employers are looking for unicorns. They're looking for a blend of skills that actually, if any one person had all those skills, they probably wouldn't be able to exercise them all very well anyway, because they'd be simply overwhelmed. But that's uh, that's part, again, of understanding what's actually required rather than going with the HR department's laundry list of qualifications and experience. But if we look forward to what's likely to happen in the next year, next couple of years, let's stay with skills for the moment. Are there any particular initiatives that you would call out as saying are particularly worthwhile and ones that we should be following and likely to help here? I think the big initiatives are things like Isarca's One in Tech. So these are courses where professional members come together to look at how to encourage people into the sector are neural diverse and are representatives of perhaps the underrepresented key one woman. What we should be doing is businesses should be working with organisations like Isarca. It's not just Isarca. I mean, we've got school schemes going on in the UK, um, you know, which is Cyber Girls First, and that's to encourage girls into the into the profession. I think there's certainly a number of other organisations and the charities with um, uh, the deaf, the blind, the autistic. And I think we just need to get in contact with them. Perhaps it's led by government or encouraging um, through perhaps the Cyber Security Council in the, you know, that was newly established by DCMS to go and speak to these people. And I'm sure they are. It's just that I feel it's a bit too fragmented on that point. We need to actually state aspirations, have a look of where we are now and build in a bit of reality so that over the next five years, we can do something that is a positive result. It's difficult. So the one thing I have noticed, though, is when I've been mentoring people who want to move into the cybersecurity space, having had no technology work before, they've not been programmers, they've not worked on help desks, they've not, you know, not done any IT assurance, anything like that. They come from a completely different background. There seems to be no route in to cybersecurity. For example, the big four have apprenticeships, but it tends to be for either younger people or they have what I call my word, pseudo apprenticeships, where they encourage their own staff to transfer. But it's not somebody from the outside coming in cold to say, hey, have a look at me. So I think this is something that we need to do um, to help realise our aspirations, but also help fill the the cybersecurity gap. So certainly some need for joined up thinking there. Yeah. Also, though, looking forward, are there any other developments that you feel were going to be particularly important in the coming year, whether that's uh, regulation, legislation, new threats, or indeed anything else that you believe is going to be high up the agenda? From the UK's perspective, obviously, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS, uh, they've got a number of pieces of legislation coming through or looking at it, one of them being the Information Commissioner's Office on, on data protection and changing and expanding that remit. There's obviously um, thoughts coming through again from DCMS about what's happening to uh, managed service providers um, as being critical infrastructure and widening the sort of definition there to bring more in scope because even small providers are essential to running our business. I think we need to look at third-party relationships. People think of third parties typically as their 
their normal supply chain where it's goods come in, some process gets done in our business, and then there's some outputs. And really what we've got now is a very complex chain which each one of our, those parts, including us as, a, as an organisation, as a company, will have third-party tech suppliers. And that makes for very, very complex interdependent um, supply chains now. And I think we really need to look at that. You can sum it up with um, managing complex relationships. So it brings a whole new um, aspect of business on um, business relationship management. So then to sum up, we talked briefly earlier about innovation yes. and the role that could play. So we've got a skills issue and we've got an issue of perhaps connecting up the various parts of the security ecosystem and dealing with risks that the supply chain presents itself. Mm-hmm. But where does innovation fit into that? Are we looking to that as a solution? And particularly, there's been a lot of talk about AI and cyber both being used uh, for, for good and also, unfortunately, for bad. Mm. Is that where you see the focus or are there other aspects of innovation that we should also be considering? There's clearly some ongoing technical innovation. And I think that is absolutely fine. But what I want to see in 2023 is more conceptual, soft aspects. And with that, I'm thinking of digital trust. This is where we need to build in everything we do in our digital world an environment where all the parties can trust each other. Now, that to me is obviously an idealism and we need a touch of realism. And the start that is to, for me, is to say that if our intended outcome in everything we do is trustworthy through the technology we use, then what we are actually having to do in our own businesses and across our supply chains is improve our governance, think about the customer experience, think about other stakeholders, including our staff, um, about the experience they have in using this technology. Think about safety, security, usability. So if we want digital trust, we need to look at all of those things. And I think if we put it under the umbrella of something that's called digital trust, to me, that is something tangible to focus on. And I think will help organizations think about their business and IT governance and what's important in terms of data flows, information sharing, and that safety, security, and usability that we all want from our systems. So that's what I'd like 2023 to focus on. If we do that, then I think we can pick out aspects of innovation that is going to be useful to us. And then the question is, how do we make that trustworthy within our own environment? And there, I think what we come into is a range of projects. And every project is an opportunity for a new, fresh beginning where we can put into that project various things that will ensure what comes out of that project is safe, secure, usable, and can be trusted what would you say the priorities would be for individuals within the cybersecurity space in the coming year? Keep on learning. So own what you already know and, if possible, improve, but also look upon, um, beyond the 
boundaries of one's particular role. See and understand what others are doing, what your own interconnections are. Because we touched on it earlier where we've got to do a bit more joined up thinking. And I think we can start as individuals to understand what other people are doing around us and why. And as part of the learning is to understand how we interconnect, what those interdependencies are, what is important, because what might be important to me is not seen as important to somebody else and vice versa, of course. So I think that's that's what I call sort of learn, learn, learn. And then I think really in terms of just ensuring what we as an organisation provide for all our stakeholders in terms of the technology and the functionality is don't forget the basics. So each time there is a change to our system, we test, 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 and keep on testing. I think the um, the push to get things to market quickly has meant we have taken shortcuts. And that's as a result, we have operational failure when things go live or there are security breaches. So no, it's test the functionality, test the resilience, test the security, test ways in, you know, the kind of pen test test and just keep testing. Sue Milton on how a sound and well-resourced cyber strategy will only be effective if organisations also take the time to test and retest their security measures. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we'll take a deeper look at the threats facing critical national infrastructure and how to counter them. That will be live on Wednesday, January the 18th. Until then, you can, of course, catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. 